Who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome back, everyone, to the Winter Quarter Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Series, presented by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Stanford Engineering Entrepreneurship Center, and BASIS, the Business Association for Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. I am so excited that Annie Hockey is with us today for ETL. She is the co-CEO of Column, a nationally chartered bank that publicly launched in 2022 for developers who are building modern financial products and services. After witnessing the bottleneck created by the legacy banking stack, Annie and her husband, William, set out to build the first API-centric bank that gives developers the tools they need to seamlessly provide banking services in any application. Previously, Annie worked at Bain & Company and Goldman Sachs and was an early employee at various Silicon Valley startups. She graduated with honors from both Stanford University and Stanford's Graduate School of Business, where she was an R.G. Miller Scholar. Uh, and she lives with uh, her husband in the Bay Area and their adorable lab, Ollie. Annie, welcome. What a pleasure to have you here. So I'm gonna start with a big question, and I, I thought it was so cool when I read about your work in the news. Uh, you bought a bank. You, you and William bought a bank. You know, it's, you could do a lot of things with you know, that amount of money, but you know, uh, when William stepped down from Plaid and um, kind of surveyed what was possible, you bought a community bank. So let's start there. Tell me about that. How did that come about? We, we sure did. People joke that you know, other people buy these really fun things called yachts and, you know, mansions. And we decided to buy a, a bank in a very adorable strip mall in Chico, California. Um, but before I answer, I just I actually wanted to get a, just a quick pulse of who's in the audience so I can sort of tailor my responses. So if you are an undergrad, would you raise your hands? All right. Amazing. And then grads. OK, um, if you've started a company, want to raise your hand. Wow. If you aspire to starting a company. OK. It's always interesting. The, the sort of percentage of potential entrepreneurs it, is really dependent on kind of macroeconomic environment. So it's, it's interesting to see that breakdown. Um, but yes, we, we bought a bank. So what feels like forever ago, William, my, my co-founder, had stepped step back from, from Plaid, and I had left my job at Bain. Um, and the real answer is that we intended to take a sabbatical for a period of time and like maybe do this thing called relax, but then COVID <laughs> hit. So we started a company a little sooner than anticipated. But, you know, we knew that we wanted to start a business together and and candidly weren't necessarily um, dying to jump back into fintech. If anything, I think, William, maybe you could have used like a little bit of a break from from fintech after having spent a decade there. Um, what we knew we wanted, though, was a sort of thorny problem that was candidly worth our time. I think when you've started a company before, you know how all-consuming that could be. And um, as fun as it might be to sort of build sort of a, an app or this or that, I think we wanted something that was like really worth sinking our teeth into. And so when we started kind of looking around and considering problems, um, financial technology just kept surfacing as, you know, a, something that we were decently familiar with and had a network in that's helpful. But B, you know, when you have the potential to change what we believe is a somewhat flawed financial system in the United States, like that's real impact, right? And that, that felt really exciting to us. Um, 
I'm, I'm going to provide a little bit of context on sort of what we do. So bear with me for a quick academic moment. But um, in the United States and in most countries like ours, um, in order to do certain things with money, uh, you have to have, in, in our case, what's called a banking charter. And so in order to hold money, store deposits, move money, um, or even loan money, you have to have um, this, this charter. And, um, and that is regulated. They're given out and they're regulated by an agency of the U.S. government, in our case, the OCC, which stands for the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency. Don't ask me what that really means. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we grew up with many fintechs who were doing things that kind of look like what banks do, right? Like if you're, if you're a Chime customer, like Chime seems to be moving money. If you're a Brex customer, Brex seems to be holding my money. But the sort of dirty secret, not so dirty secret of fintech is that on the back end of all of those fintechs you've heard of, most fintechs are partnering with some sort of community bank who is powering their underlying infrastructure and unsurprisingly really capturing the majority of the unit economics. Now, what's fascinating is that basically, I don't know, can I swear in here? Yeah, totally. Basically, they're all shitty. Like all of the existing op options are pretty horrible. And given that we kind of grew up along alongside many fintech founders that you may have heard of, we just kept hearing these horror stories of like, oh my gosh, you pay a bank to store your funds and then the bank also gets to monetize the funds. Like we just kept hearing these wild things. And so we were sort of thinking like, this is such a like low bar. Like, why don't we get one of these charters, right? Why don't we do this a little bit better? Um, because, you know, we really believe that because so many of these options are so bad, it's actually really constraining the industry. In order for a partner bank to start to talk to um, sort of an up and coming fintech, you have to have millions of dollars in the bank, maybe a year runway. Like, that's a big burden to have as an aspiring entrepreneur. And so we really believe that the financial technology ecosystem, as big as it seems recently with a lot of money going into it, it's actually small. And so if we sort of lower that barrier to entry by being a better partner, like what, what could exist, right? What should exist in the world? So that's sort of the thesis going in. And then we needed to do this thing like get at this charter. And so um, this is sort of first phase, I think, of column company building, which was basically emailing every lawyer who would give us 30 minutes of free time and asking them about banking charters. So maybe lesson one is um, there's a surprising number of people who give you 30 minutes of their time if you say mm -hmm. you're a Stanford student um, and you're eager to build something in their field. Um, so after, you know, months and months of just asking kind of the same old question, it, was, it became really clear to us that kind of in this regulatory environment, really the only way to get your hands on a charter is to acquire one. So then we went to kind of second phase of starting column, which was like M&A, right? And in this phase, I'd say most sane people probably hire a banker to like help them. But we kind of thought, you know, we're a little cheap. We're bootstrapped. Uh, what can they do that we can't? And so we went onto the FDIC website, um, downloaded a list of every single FDIC-insured financial institution in the States. There's about 5,500 credit unions, about 5,500 banks. Um, and we just started chopping the model. Um, and we sort of chopped, chopped, chopped based on the parameters that we'd put in place. Um, at this point, it was me, William, and um, a part-time business school student um, because basically all business school um, internships got canceled during COVID. So he was working for us. Um, and we got down to a list of about 100. And we just called all of them. And I, I remember one time we had a conversation with the three of us. And we were like, how many 
many follow-ups is too many follow-ups? And we decided the answer was infinity. And we just kept calling um, and got really lucky. At the end of the day, we had a few options of banks that we wanted to purchase and feel really, really fortunate to have ended up with um, the bank that we did, Northern California National Bank. It is in California. It had a really great leadership team. and It's been a pleasure to work with. It's incredible. You know, my, one of my favorite parts of your story is, you know, there, you just believed in your own agency to learn and you just picked up an M&A textbook and read the whole thing and figured out how to do it yourself. Yeah. Not because you were cheap, but because I think you were very, very able to just give yourself the chance to learn. Yeah. And I think that's something that's common amongst all of you. Even if you don't have that skill set now, you could literally pick up a textbook or pick up the phone and learn, which is great. So now that we have Calm.com set up and you own this incredible bank in Chico, California and the strip mall, uh, you and William uh, very intentionally became co-CEOs and that's kind of a unique setup. And you know, throughout this quarter, you know, we've met a number of co-CEOs, co-founders, et cetera. Um, I'm really excited that that's kind of thematically what we're gonna talk about this quarter. Um, how do you and William sort of think about that and doing that well, because it's, it's kind of a unique and new way of leading a company. Yeah, um, I think there's sort of two pieces there. It's like we were co-CEOs and then they married co-CEOs. And that's um, a really interesting thing. And I think, um, you know, there's many reasons for this. I think one of the lessons that William and Zach Prey, his co-founder at Plaid, learns that when when you know you you think maybe in the eyes of everyone else that like a CTO, a CEO, a COO, whatever, co-founder, they're all sort of equal. But at the end of the day, um, a lot of times uh, events or folks want the CEO, and what that means is it's really an undue burden on one person in the founding team. And so we really strategically sort of divided and you know said we'll both do this. And what we often tell our team is that if we're both in the same meeting, we've really failed. Um, because our job is to divide and conquer, and then we will come back on our own time and sort of share our learnings, right? But we try to be pretty maniacal about time usage um, so that any one of us can sort of be the eyes to the, you know, eyes and ears when needed. So tell me a little bit more about also how you chose to deliberately divide and conquer, because sometimes that can get really blurry, and then yeah. you want to make sure that doesn't sort of trickle down to your staff. And then also, in addition to that, um, like, how do you resolve conflict? Like when you two don't agree on something as like co-CEOs, like you have, you may or have, may not have equal power. How, how does that work when yeah. you don't agree? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really great question. In terms of dividing responsibilities, roles and responsibilities, I think um, one of the things that's really nice for us is we have quite complementary skill sets, um, which is, you know, a really nice way of saying we're quite different. Um, and so, I think it became pretty natural bifurcation of William would build product um, and then actually lead selling the pro product. So all of um, product engineering design and then all go to market functions. And I would sort of do basically everything else, which um, ended up being really sort of he is a more big picture macro thinker and I'm, you know, the one that makes sure that like people get paid at the end of the day. And so that sort of like complimentary thing I think is key and, and something I would encourage all of you to think about um, up front when you're picking your co-founding team. Um, it's really fun. It's really easy. It's really nice to work with people exactly like you. I would always joke at the business school that doing group projects was like doing a project with five of you and it like happened really fast and like everything got submitted early. Um, but I think that we all know from research now that like 
candidly diverse teams are really important and that's what drives innovation and moves the needle forward. And so strategically making sure that if not your co-founder, um, your initial team is there to fill your gaps. I think that's a, a huge thing that can often be a little bit overlooked. Um, in terms of how do we resolve conflicts? Yeah. Yes, um, let's, let's get in there. Um, we rely really heavily, this is sort of one of the things that I think we learned, um, You every co-founding team learns how to do this. I think we learn particularly quick, right? Because we also um, have a personal life. We are just maniacal about um, decision-making ownership. So there's a lot of frameworks. Um, one is called Rapids. I know like BCG, McKinsey, uh, Bain, they all have basically the same framework that they call different things. And basically the gist, gist of them is that whenever you have a problem or initiative, aligning up front on who is the ultimate decision maker, singular, and who is allowed to and when have input or say. And so um, especially early on in call when our roles were not as beautifully bifurcated because now we basically never see each other, but at the beginning it was like we're on every call together. Um, we would just decide up front who ha had the decision, right? And there are many instances where, you know, say William was decision maker and I just fundamentally disagreed with him. And at the end of the day, sometimes I was proving wrong, proven wrong. That's an amazing learning for me. Sometimes he was proven wrong. Amazing learning for him. Because if you want to make every decision by yourself, I think you might as well be a single founder, right? Why else do you have that person with you? You know, I, I love that you brought up Rapid. Uh, we've used it as well, you know, in our day to day. And it's super useful to just identify who is responsible for what very clearly up front. Yeah. And that's sort of, it's almost like, you know, putting the earthquake kit in place before the earthquake hits, right? Totally. So when, totally. you know, things, emotions are high, you know, there's something to go back to a framework to work with. You know, I want to sort of double click on, on um, so you and William being really, really great uh, 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 compliments to each other. One of the things I read about um, you sort of sharing with the press is that William will like leave the house without socks on because he's like thinking about the future of banking in Afghanistan. Um, tell us a little bit more about like how you deal with some of that like space cadet absent-mindedness and how you harness it. How you how do you help him harness it? Yeah. And then how does he help you? You know, and vice versa. You know in whatever way. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, this it used to drive me crazy. And when I have wife cap on, sometimes it still drives me crazy. But I think, you know, now more and more, it's like, thank goodness someone is thinking about it, right? Um, and to the point about compliments, I mean, this is where I think having sort of both things at once, like if both William and I were thinking about banking policy in Afghanistan, like nothing would ever get done on the team. But if both of us are trying to make sure payroll gets done, to use that example again, like no one would be thinking about the future of the company. Um, and I think that they, you know, as someone who tends to be a little bit more of a detail focused, like now problem person, something I've really learned from working so closely with someone who's like a tomorrow problem person is the importance of um, being really intentional about the use of your time um, and mental space. When you're a co-founder, basically, if you, if you let it happen, every single minute of every single day and night uh, could be taken from you without your consent, right? If it's folks from my team grabbing 30 minutes on the calendar, if it's a fire, if it's just kind of like the mundane day-to-day -day of running what's now for us like a 100-person company, 
Like, I think you can wake up and look at your calendar for the next six months and like it's all spoken for. Mm. I think that's super, super dangerous. As a leader, my job is to hire people to make sure that shit gets done. My job is to make sure that we are positioned for threats that may come in the future. And so thinking about where does column need to be in five years? What does that mean for three years, two years? How should I be using my time this week? And that should drive the use of my time. Um, and so I, you know, it's something I tell people and I tell even my team, it's like, you are the, how, you are the keeper of your time because at the end of the day, that's the most valuable resource. This is probably the most extreme example of it, but I, I think like, something I often think about is Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma, right? I'm sure you all are familiar with this. The basic gist is, you know, the disruptor inevitably becomes the incumbent and then they're disrupted, right? I think a part of why that happens is when you lead increasingly large organizations, it is so easy to sort of have inertia take you. I know so many founders who, you know, I just spent the last weekend with a lot of fintech founders and like, they were basically all depressed because they were like, well, all of my days are I wake up at six and then at eight, I have like 30 minute chunks until post work dinner. That doesn't let you think, right? No wonder we get bogged down and someone else has a good idea and takes us over. So just be really protective of that because that's, you know, that's the secret sauce that brings you all here. I love that answer. I think uh, Indira Nori, um, CEO of PepsiCo, once said, having a busy calendar is nothing to be proud of. Totally. Right? Protect that. Yeah, protect yeah. it. Yeah. Protect it. Well, let me ask a follow-on question because, you know, one thing that you and William have been very intentional about is also transitioning. And, you know, as when it was just the two of you, you as you said, you were on every call together, you did everything together, and then now you're a 100-person team. So when do you know what to hand off? Like, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you know who to hand off to and what to hand off to and when. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it really changes over time. And I think this is one of those where, so both of us try to block off Wednesdays as no meeting days. And unless there's a really big fire, which shouldn't happen, we usually do protect that. Um, and not every Wednesday needs to be like an existential reflection Wednesday, but I think, you know, at least once a quarter, um, we try to sort of map out like what, what, what went well last quarter what did I need to do last quarter? And then in this coming quarter, like what are my top initiatives? Um, and if something doesn't make it to your top initiative, if it's not like the highest and best use of your time, I think that's a really clear signal that there's probably someone on your team who could take something over for you, or if not, a hire that you need to put in place. And so I think the answer isn't like, you'll just know on a day-to-day -day basis. I think the answer is to t take a step back and sort of click up and think strategically about like where your time is best used and, and everything else you can sort of program or design around that. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about um, the lessons learned over the course of both your careers. So William founded Plaid, co-founded Plaid, and then had that incredible run. And then you yourself uh, had worked at many different companies, at Bain, at Goldman Sachs, at a number of startups. Like, What were some of the lessons that you learned in either um, building the company that you have now for your staff or how to work with customers? What were some of those really key lessons yeah. that stuck with you that you've brought with you or stuck with you to not do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, I think for both of us, the number one thing is hiring in your team. Um, if you have an incredible team, customers will, fall, will follow. In a business like ours, a lot of sales come through the developers. And so um, 
a company will want to work with us versus a different partner bank because their developers like to work with our developers and they sort of speak the same language. And so like, you know, I'll say it a million times that the most important thing that you will do is hire. I think, you know, a lot of founders are sort of shocked by how much time they spend in interviews and think that's a bad thing. William and I actually think that's a really good thing. The vast majority of our time is spent interviewing um, and that's okay, right? Like we have a little tiny team, but that's kind of our everything. Um, it, at the business school, we had sort of a crude slogan that is hire slow, fire fast. And as, you know, cheeky as that might sound, I really stand by it, which is um, if you kind of get a bad apple in the pot, it's really easy for that to rot the rest of the apples. And so be really diligent about bringing people on board. The second you know it's not a fit, it's a disservice to both of you to, to keep that going. And, you know, it's a lot cleaner and easier to just sort of cut it early and let it go. Um, but I think, you know, hiring is really only one part of, of the equation because sort of alluding to your point you made earlier, you then have to use that team, right? So empower that team to challenge you and disagree with you. I think that's really important for me is I don't want like a lot of, you know, I don't want to be Putin with his, you know, whatever is around him saying he's doing a good job in winning the war, right? Like I really want to know if I'm not winning the war. Um, and also delegate, which is which is really, really hard. Um, you know, I would say um, what we didn't take with us, I think there is a playbook in Silicon Valley of how to start and run a company. Um, I think it's a really popular playbook because it worked for a lot of companies that we've all heard of, probably Plaid included. Um, but I think that we have over time tried to force fit that model to companies that that don't really belong there. Um, that model sort of like to gloss over is, you know, have a good idea, raise a bunch of, raise all the money you can possibly raise from like a, the most splashy name brand venture firm, grow, 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 scale, 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 test, test, spaghetti on the wall and see what happens, right? We're a nationally chartered regulated financial institution. Like there is no spaghetti that's gonna get thrown on my walls. <laughs> Everything we have to do has to be like really methodically done and cared for. And so, you know, I think we thought long and hard about like what, you know, what our business strategy needs to be for our product or service. And then everything needs to flow around that. Your hiring strategy needs to map to that. Your go-to-market strategy needs to map to that. Your fundraising strategy, your PR strategy needs to map to that. And for us, it looks really, really different from the playbook. Um, so I would just encourage all of you, when you're going into an endeavor, I think it's really easy to get pulled into the sort of glamorous world that that is, right? It's really fun to be in the top of TechCrunch. Okay. Let's all call a spade a spade, right? But like, is that really getting you customers? And if not, spend your time elsewhere. Um, and so just be diligent about that time. I love the fact that you have not raised venture money at all, yeah. right? And the fact that the buying the bank meant that you have a revenue stream coming from running a community bank yeah. and you've decided to keep all of the equity within your own team and your own staff. And it's a model that we don't talk a lot about here because of that sort of understood Silicon Valley default playbook. Yeah. But venture money is not the only way. And that's a really important lesson that I think we can learn from William and Annie. Um, one follow-on question with hiring, like what makes for a great hire into your company for those who might be interested? Yeah, yeah. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think we, um, 
we hire really in line with kind of our company corporate values. Um, and so I think we look for people who like love our product and not our perks, to be totally honest. Um, and so they're in it for the right reasons. And there's kind of ways that you can start to suss that out in the interviews. But actually, I think references in that case are really valuable and looking at people and who don't necessarily start up hop, but have been at startups for a prolonged period of time. Um, we also look for people who are really driven by impact versus ego. And so for us, questions like, how big will my team be? Or um, what will my title be? For us can sometimes, as much as you should always, you know, negotiate for yourself, ask for what you deserve, blah, 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 disclaimer. I think those for us can be red flags because we don't want people who are in it for the land grab. We want someone who can go home at the end of the day and maybe have worked by themselves all day, but ship something really cool. And like, that is the accomplishment. And so just hiring people for the right reasons. And it's, um, it's, you know, given us this really sort of like small, lean, but mean, really powerful team. Um, that's really, it's honestly really fun to work with because churn isn't built into our model. So it. it's the same people every day. I love it. I also love the fact that you've hired people who have a real family life. Like it's not about working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It's about really this balance that mm -hmm. you sort of create into your culture. Okay, final question before we hand it over to students for uh, live questions. Uh, at one point, many moons ago, uh, you were at Stanford Business School and you were entering your first year winter quarter. And we're kind of entering first year winter quarter. You are actually our first in-person speaker. If you were sitting, if the sort of past version of yourself were sitting in the front row today, what would you tell her? <laughs> I would not have been sitting in the front row. I should have been. Um, maybe second or third. Um, I think my answer would differ because I've had the fortunate um, ability to come back not once but twice to Stanford and I still say I'm maybe not done. Um, uh, I think my answer would be different. So if I were an undergrad, you know, I think what I would encourage everyone to do is sort of take a look at the course book and look at the intro classes for things that are really outside what makes you comfortable, mm -hmm. right? That might be, you know, I'm going to date myself, CS106A, that might be Bio oh, yeah. Math 51, that might be Physics, right? And do something that's like a little bit out there. I, I made the mistake of, I sort of finished my majors and then at senior year I had time. So I was like, oh, I'm going to take an econ class and a CS class and sort of some of these. And I honestly loved them. Mm. And I thought, what a shame that I didn't discover this about myself early. So to the, to the extent that you can sort of find out new things about yourself early on or even round out your edges, I really encourage you to do that, even though it can feel a little bit scary. Pass-fail exists for a reason. Mm. Um, and then if I were in a business school or grad school program, and maybe this applies as an undergrad as well, I think just like make yourself say yes, right? Maybe there's a small group dinner of people you like honestly don't really know and that feels a little scary, go. Yeah. Maybe someone's hosting a trip to their home country, go. Maybe there's a speaker like all the way across campus and it's raining, just show <laughs> up. Um, I think it's really important to sort of put yourself in um, positions that make you feel a little bit uncomfortable um, and, and shoot for that discomfort, maybe like, over 50% of the time. Wow. Wild. So great. So great. That was a really nice note to end on before we head off to audience questions. So our CAs, if you have a question, raise your hand and we will bring you a microphone.
Hi, thank you for being here. Um, so you talked a lot about time. So I am always struggling with like managing my time, like trying to find that right balance. So do you have like any strategies for like time management? Mm, the fleeting resource. You know, I would say my answer is is shifted over time. So I'll tell you what works for me now and what I should have been doing when I was in your position. I think the way I think about my weeks now is, okay, block out your time. And then what are like your fundamental like self-care slash health things, right? That should be a certain degree of sleep. For me, it's like I have to go to Pilates twice a week. Like what are all the things that you just need to do to be a, a thriving, happy, healthy human? Get that out of there. Okay, what are the blocks that you're left with? And in a way, your work and your studies kind of have to fit into there. And I actually often find that when we're dealing with constraints, we're more productive. So if you have like 12 hours of free time that you could just sort of use for whatever, it's like, oh, maybe I'll pull up my phone and maybe I'll da da da. If you have like, in a way, sometimes I'll do sprints where I'll say, this is my inbox sprint and I have two hours and I'm just gonna like, put on really aggressive music and just sprint it out. Like is sometimes giving yourself uh, false constraints can actually sort of help um, with your productivity. But I would say, you know, the worst thing for productivity is to let go of the things that make you whole. Mm. Thank you so much. Hi, Alexa. Hi. Thanks for being here. Uh, you had mentioned something about how important it is for your developers to speak the same language as your clients' developers. So I'm curious, along that same note, speaking the same language for your business, which is so highly regulated, how have you learned to speak the same language as many of the regulators who you are currently in conversations with to the extent that you're able to like answer this question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that's a very good, that's a very insightful question. Because um, we always joke that when we started column, and it'd be like, me and my EIC, which is my examiner in charge, and you know, I would like speak in English, and then they would speak back OCC. And it was just like, does, you know, does not compute. And, um, you know, honestly, we learned that like the answer isn't for us to meet in the middle when there are certain, you know, the answer was me for me to learn OCC. Um, and, you know, I'll sort of answer specifically in this case, which is, I think it was through a higher, a combination of talking to like anyone who would give me advice um, and reading the handbook. So I think this is that example of, you know, sometimes you just kind of hit the books and the OCC has this really nice thing that's called the OCC handbook and the OCC test manual. And at a certain point, you just kind of have to learn how to read it to speak their language. Um, but I think, you know, it's something now, like one of my sort of challenges now is we are really proud of the fact that we have a developer-led culture um, but we're also aware of the fact that we have for a company of our size a vastly inflated le legal compliance regulatory um, team. And so as much as we want our whole team to understand sort of like product speak and jargon and what we're rolling out, there's sort of a similar burden or responsibility for me for everyone on the team to also kind of like speak. It's like everyone needs to get a baseline language understanding of what everyone is doing. Um, and the way that we do those is weekly spotlights. Um, and they're really fun, but at part of our team meeting every week, we have someone like give a presentation about what they're working on and how it works. So like, for example, from an engineering perspective, one week we had um, a really fun and like oddly hilarious presentation about like um, 
uh, checks and e-checks. And it's actually really interesting, the story. Like, the reason you can wirelessly remote deposit cap to capture a check is a direct result of 9-11. Like, who knew, right? Um, because the financial, like, checks weren't able to fly around the states, and so no one could deposit their check in person. So we have to have remote deposit cancer capture because like the system shut down after 9-11 and similar thing for sort of a legal compliance side they'll tell our team about like you know we're we have examinations on a quarterly basis like what does that mean do they come in person what are they looking at so there's just a team sharing there that i think is really important so we don't become like this bifurcated polarized company internally i love that so much i think um work can also mean learning and teaching each other things and keeping that culture as part of the culture is super important as we all grow together. Uh, let's have one more question in the audience, but Mandy was going to look up the top voted Zoom question as well. So uh, let's take one in the far back and then we'll come back to Mandy. So first of all, thank you very much for the inspiring talk. Um, so I have a question regarding your company culture. It's a little bit related to the question up front. Um, so you mentioned you are very, very diligent about the people you are hiring ab and about the values you are incorporating into your company. So what are these values and how do you incorporate them on a daily basis? Yeah, um, I think we're in the process of kind of codifying them. Um, and we actually have sort of slightly specific. So we have a 30 person team that sits in Chico at our bank. And then we have the sort of startup team that sits mostly in San Francisco in our Presidio office. Um, and we actually have slightly different values for both of those based on kind of the people in place. But I would say, you know, I think first and foremost, just um, a drive to excellence, right? I think the the sort of main differentiator for us is like there there are community banks out there who if you want to offer a debit card or you want to have bank, like there are community banks that like technically do what we do. I think that our whole differentiator is that we're just better at it and it's better to work with us than anyone else and like maybe even worth paying a little bit more to work with us than anyone else. Um, and so I think having folks that just have that internally, um, having that drive, I think is really huge and related to that like and drive to be excellent and drive to like change this ecosystem that we that we live in. and. Um, I'd say the other thing, and this is especially true for the engineering team when we first began hiring, was um, folks who are pragmatic, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I think from an engineer, I'm no engineer, but in the engineering world, I think you can have like purists mm -hmm. and then you can have scrappy. And ours is like somewhere in the middle, but like a little bit more maybe scrappy. And so engineers who are, everyone is a little bit more business minded. And I think we get away with that because like we're self-funded. Right. There's no investor. There's no Sequoia who's like around the corner going to come in with 50 million if we like need a little bit more cash. And so I think like this ethos of a family, we really drive in the fact that we are like a family company. Our dog comes to the office every day. William and I are married. Like we love it when people bring their kids and their spouses to work. We're a family company and we're a self-funded company. And so I think that people... Um, they sort of treat the money like it's their own in a way. And I think that's um, kind of healthy. Mandy from Zoom. Were you and William initially hesitant to build a company that would have potential regulatory and legal challenges? And how would you recommend founders begin to approach an idea with a complex regulatory situation? Oh, it's such a good question. I think, I mean, when we started, 
column, the regulatory framework was a little bit different. Brian Brooks was the head of the OCC and he like wears skinny jeans and thinks he's a startup guy. <laughs> now the OCC kind of doesn't like startups anymore. Um, and so we were less concerned about it at the time. I think there was a little bit of a moment where regulatory bodies were sort of like slightly more open to fintech becoming a part of the regulated world, sort of like entering what's called the regulatory perimeter, and that's sort of no longer the case. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's just kind of a cost of doing business. Um, what, what I will also say, though, is what on one hand is a burden is also a really beautiful moat around what we do. Like, it's not easy to get a banking charter. And once you get it, you have to like work hard to keep it. They can take it away. Um, and for us, you know, like that's just, we'll just hire again, more lawyers than we thought we necessarily needed to and like focus a little bit more on compliance. But at the end of the day, what that's really gonna do is fend off um, competitors. And so there actually is a little bit of a silver lining to it. Um, if I were entering the space now, I think what I would just say is, um, it doesn't, you know, I think we just saw this with um, FTX and SBF, like he thought that he could exist. He, he sort of thought he was smarter and he could exist outside of our regulatory schema and sort of be a cowboy. Um, I just would be, I would hesitate to have that same thought. Um, so whatever kind of space you're entering, I just make sure you're familiar with the reg, even if it doesn't directly apply to you. Um, Talk to people who will talk to you about maybe the future of the reg because it will shift and there's people who kind of can see where it's going. Um, and like, again, maybe build some lawyers into your headcount models a little earlier than you thought. I, I loved what you just said about um, really being good partners and like being a good citizen and respecting the OCC uh, rather than kind of going around it and disregarding it because ultimately, if you can demonstrate that you can do good work here and safely and securely, you have a chance of then changing it and moving yep. it forward yep. towards a more fintech friendly uh, future. Yeah, that's the goal. So the partnership really helps there. Yeah. Uh, we'll take maybe one or two more questions from the audience. Let's do the green sweater. Thank you. Uh, hey, Annie, thanks for talking to us today. Um, Compared to other fintechs that are building kind of modern API focused infrastructure, it seems like Column has an incredibly small team, but also like a really broad range of products. How do you build so quickly? What do you, what do you credit that kind of engineering success to? Yeah. Um, we hired people who knew what they were doing, I think is the real sort of answer there. I think, um, you know, when you hire engineers, uh, it's easy to hire kind of like generalists, like financial infrastructure is a really broad term. It's growing term. Um, this is, I'll credit William with, um, he, our entire team basically up until like the last 20, 15 hires were people that like he and I just stalked on Instagram and, you know, <laughs> kept stalking until they would come work for us. So we really picked, I, our, our engineering team is still about six people, which is phenomenal. Um, that doesn't include designers, but that includes like our core engineers. And um, that's because it's the engineer who wrote the internal ledger at Facebook, wrote the ledger at Blend, who wrote the ledger at Square, right? Like these were the kind of OGs who knew what they were doing. And, and that, you know, over time, what we'll probably do is sort of like go down 
go down and hire like a more junior fleet of engineers who can sort of like support and clean up code, et cetera, et cetera. But we decided early on, and this is where you just have to like sort of think about what's your business strategy and hire against that. We decided that hiring experts was was the way to go because William just didn't have the bandwidth to manage anything else in the timeline we wanted. I'm so glad you mentioned that because oftentimes people are like, oh, let's just have more engineers at it. Like, let's put more squeeze on it. And at the end of the day, um, it's really the person who architects the first round of code and who leads that vision that really drives the software. And we can bring on many, many more folks afterwards to scale things, but it, that core is beautiful. The fact that six people, I, I'm even more shocked and, and amazed. So yeah, thank you for that. Pretty great. Wow. I think we have time for maybe one last question. Uh, maybe you guys can Rochambeau it out or something like that. Okay, all right, person in the red, person in the red wins. Hi, Annie. Uh, thanks for the great talk. Um, I was just going to ask about um, your journey toward the entrepreneurial space at Stanford. So um, I'm like really interested in, in all of this, but I don't have any like startup ideas and I'm not affiliated with the GSB or anything. So I was just going to ask if you had any like suggestions or advice for, for someone who might be in my shoes. Yeah. I mean, I think I was probably in your shoes. I was telling um, a few folks before my undergraduate majors were neuropsychology and English. Um, that's not what I do today, um, but I write a mean email. Um, you know, I think um, there are some people who know that they want to be an entrepreneur, and there are other people who um, know that there's a product or a service that they think needs to exist, and they might as well be the one to do it. I'm in the latter camp. Um, but I would say, I actually think there's a undue pressure to be sort of like the young Evan Spiegel archetype of like a really young kid who starts a company. I think in many ways, part of why we are able to have six and person engineering team, et cetera, et cetera, is because this isn't our first rodeo yeah. and we've seen how it's done before. And so I would take the pressure off. Um, uh, you know, there are many ways that you can sort of fit into that. And I think um, I wouldn't force fit something until you meet a person or have an idea that's compelling enough for you to like, you know, get some white hairs over it. Um, and so maybe that's joining a bigger team. Maybe that's joining a few small startups to sort of like put together your hypothesis. For me, it was joining kind of by accident, a really small startup after undergrad, um, learning a lot about like what I liked, what I didn't like, then learning how real companies work at Goldman and Bain, knowing I wanted to come back into startups and do it from a really thoughtful perspective. Um, and, you know, if I'll leave the room with kind of one thing, it's, Careers are long, and I basically guarantee that your job after this, wherever you are, will not be your forever job. And so it's okay to have moments where you're gathering data, even if you're waiting to find what that forever job is. It's amazing. I think we're coming up on time. This was so fun to have yeah. you here today. What super, a treat. Super interesting conversation. So many topics. Wait, wait. So uh, before you all run off, next week we have yet another lecture. I will be hosting Dave Vassin, who is the CEO and founder of Brightwheel, an educational company for pre-K. He was also my classmate at Stanford, which is super exciting to have him back. He'll have a story about going on Shark Tank and uh, going through that route. Uh, if you are interested in, in any more videos, podcasts, articles, go to ecorner.stanford.edu. Uh, all of our lecture series and more is posted there. So thank you again. Huge round of applause for Anne Hockey. Thank you. Thank you all. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner 
are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at ecorner.stanford.edu.